This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. The president's reignited the flu versus COVID-19 debate. He tweeted about the flu, saying sometimes it kills over 100,000 people in the U.S. in a year. That tweet on Twitter was flagged, uh, replaced with a warning that the info was uh, not correct. We're going to look into this, talk to a doctor now far into this pandemic. Do we have the numbers to go on one side or the other? And we'll hear from two people who have recovered from COVID and ask them if this is just like the flu. We may never know who's responsible for giving the president the coronavirus. The White House not going to do the contact tracing from that Rose Garden event. Movie theaters. You remember movie theaters? I used to really like those. Yeah, I did too, but they're in big trouble now. And here's the question. How can they survive if they can't play movies? But we start with the flu versus COVID. Dr. Jahan Fahimi, medical director, the UC San Francisco Emergency Department. Doctor, uh, is the president right? I think he's extremely wrong. And in fact, it's just kind of a reckless statement to be making, to be honest. Uh, We look at the number of people who have died from COVID in a short period of time. It hasn't even been a full year yet. Um, And this is despite the fact that we have shut down our economy, that people are walking around in masks, people don't see their family members. We've changed our entire way of life and still uh, hundreds of thousands more have died from COVID than, than we typically see from the flu each year. So we can take the actual death numbers, but then we can also expand it to differences between the flu and the virus. The virus more contagious, and also it can be spread via asymptomatic carriers. So that changes the game, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think you you said it exactly right. Um, In terms of the infectiousness of COVID versus the flu, um, I think the answer there is that it depends. Um, We don't know for sure if COVID is a more infectious um, virus, but it's definitely trickier than the flu. Um, So asymptomatic patients can transmit COVID, um, but asymptomatic patients, to our knowledge, you know, for all the data that we've had over over many decades, um, asymptomatic patients don't transmit the flu. Um, And so that's where this gets very, very challenging for us to really understand. But if you took two people, one with the flu and one with COVID, and you put them, you know, in a room and you had to step inside the room, which one are you more likely to catch? It's not totally clear. Um, There are some reports that actually the flu might be more infectious in that way if you have two symptomatic patients, uh, you know, one with flu and one with COVID. Um, But it's that asymptomatic spread. And also now what we're realizing more about these super spreading events. So it's not just that every single person with COVID has the same amount of infectiousness. It turns out that there's some subset of people who are responsible for a lot of the spreading and who those people are and how we predict them that we we haven't yet been able to figure out. I'm wondering to, to try to, I was going to say, I'm going to try to put myself in the president's head, but I don't, that may be a risky place to go. But, but, let, but let me try to for a minute. Can he make a plausible case that when you look at the the tens of millions of people worldwide who uh, have been tested and who remain either asymptomatic or, you know, have minimal symptoms, plus the the vast unknown numbers of people who, because they haven't been tested, may and maybe even probably have been infected, but we just don't know about it and they're certainly not 
dead, they're very much alive and very much functioning human beings. Can he make a plausible argument that as bad as 200,000 deaths in this country and what, over a million now worldwide are when you compare that to the number that might exist of those infected but are doing just fine? It's not, in that way of looking at it, such a bad disease. Well, I, I see where where you and, and potentially the president are going with that line of questioning. And we've known all along that once we know the full number of people who are infected by this, the complication rate, the hospitalization rate, the mortality rate, the, the percent of people who have those outcomes goes down because you have a lot of people who don't suffer those consequences. And that that is true. Um, but I think it's important to understand that Whereas with the flu, we kind of have a good sense of what that disease course is like. You get infected, you start to have symptoms, it has a predictable trajectory, you recover. Some people have a more severe form, some people have a more mild form, and some people do go on to be hospitalized and do die from it. I mean, it can be extremely severe. With COVID, the range of symptoms is even more uh, broad, right? So you have asymptomatic patients on, on one end, and really profoundly sick, sicker than flu patients on the other end. And so, um, you know, it, yes, you could argue that there are more people in that sort of asymptomatic side of the spectrum, and therefore, on average, um, it doesn't cause as much harm as as the flu if you you know when you when you average it out. But uh, let's keep in mind that the absolute numbers also matter, right? So the absolute number of people who get COVID and the number of people who die from COVID is, is substantially higher. Um, and the number of complications that we see and the severe illnesses that we see is higher in COVID. So I get it. Um, you know, this disease could spread all around the world and everyone could get it. And, and maybe on average, people would be less sick than if they got the flu, um, but you would cause a lot of death and destruction, just like we're seeing um, across the whole population if, if the disease spread rapidly. Dr. Jahan Fahimi, Medical Director, University of California, San Francisco Health Emergency Department. Do people who have had COVID feel it's just like the flu? Let's ask a couple of them. Elizabeth Schneider lives in Seattle. She was among the earliest cases of infection on the West Coast. Scott Cohen lives near New York City, had an extremely critical case of COVID-19. Elizabeth, we haven't talked for, for a while. Remind us how this went for you and how things have been since. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. So, yeah, if you will recall or if your viewer, viewers were listening, uh, last time I was on, I got the virus from a house party. So I attended a party with a group of friends on February 22nd. And at that point, you know, we knew about the virus, but it was mostly contained to China. There was um, a case in the Seattle area back in um, mid-January. But, you know, we were nowhere near the state that we are in terms of intermittent quarantine and mask wearing and social distancing. So we didn't think too much of it. Um, and then three days later, I fell sick. And it turned out about half of the 30 or 40 um, people that attended the party also fell sick, and we had almost exactly the same symptoms. Uh, at the time, I thought it was just the flu. I didn't have any respiratory symptoms. Um, I didn't even go to the doctor because I was recovering fine at home. And my friends went to the doctor, uh, to their doctors, and were told they had the flu, were tested for the flu, and, and the test came back negative. It wasn't until uh, one of my friends had the bright idea of um, submitting um, applications to be part of a research study 
that we actually found out that we all had COVID and we did um, a nasal swab test kit at home. Um, and so I found out that I had it and um, pretty much everyone at the party who got sick had it as well. But we were very lucky. None of us was hospitalized. And as I said, I, I recovered at home. And since then, you know, I've, I've felt sick a few times here and there over the summer, um, you know, figured out some of that was allergies and I'm actually not feeling too great right now. And, you know, from the outset, it seems like I have all this signs of COVID. You know, I, I have a cough, I have congestion, I have a low temperature, but I did go back and get another COVID test and I did so as well the other times I was I was feeling ill just to be sure and the test came back negative. So, you know, it's um so, likely some other some other bug that's okay. floating around. But but what do you make then of so so the trajectory of, of your infection, and then we'll get to Scott in a minute, the trajectory of your infection was, uh, I, I don't know, it sounds like it was sort of uh, mild. Uh, moderate would be a lot stronger. So I, I guess mild would be the way we, one might describe it. Uh, what do you make of the president's notion that nothing to fear uh, pretty much equates it with the seasonal flu? Yeah, I don't think that's entirely accurate. Um, you know, well, first of all, you know, he's the president and he has access to, you know, medical care above and beyond what the average person has access to, including the fact that he got an experimental antibody cocktail that's still in development from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, um, as well as, you know, getting access to Revlimid, which is an antiviral drug from Gilead, which is, is being used to fight the coronavirus, but it's not always available. Um, he also got dexamethasone, which is a very common anti-inflammatory that is being used to treat um, COVID patients. So I wouldn't necessarily say that his um, example is, you know, going to be the norm for someone his age and, and for someone, you know, with certain comorbidities such as obesity. Um, you know, but I think there's a lot of stuff we don't really fully understand about this virus and you know, there are even people that are my age, you know, 37 or younger, that are getting this virus and end up being hospitalized and on a ventilator. So it's definitely not something to trifle with. I think, you know, the majority of the people that do get this, um, you know, are going to be able to recover. We've seen that in the numbers. And, and what I got as my takeaway when I had it, you know, at the beginning of the year is, you know, if I hadn't have gotten that test through the Seattle flu study, I would have never had known that I had COVID. And I think there are so many people like that around the country, around the world, who thought that they had the flu or thought they had a cold. And in fact, they did probably likely have COVID and they just were never tested because yeah. in the early stage, we weren't testing testing as much. Yeah, um, they're always going to wonder. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Scott Cohen, let's bring you in, Elizabeth. Thanks. Scott, we always hear the same thing with these cases and it's you never know how it's going to hit you. You're the opposite of Elizabeth. She she got away and it's great that she had a mild case. You decidedly did not and you still you still got the cough months later. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, my story is very different, like you said. Uh I contracted um COVID very early on as well, probably sometime uh late March. Uh, I was in the hospital uh, about three days after having my first symptoms. Uh I was on a ventilator a few days after that, where I remained uh, for 10 days. Um, in my case, um, drugs like um, Rendesivir and some of these new uh, mono and hypoimmune drugs uh, treatments are not out yet. Uh, um, I was given uh, hydroxychloroquine, which did not work for me. Um, 
And uh, then I was given uh, convalescent plasma, which uh, 24 hours later I was sitting up and, and uh, you know, talking. So it's great. Scott, are you okay? Yeah, I'm sorry. Just uh, no, 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 no. Here, take your time. No, no, I understand. I, I so so what? Same question that we posed to Elizabeth when the president says, as he's now said it a couple of times in the past 48 hours, that COVID is nothing to be afraid of. Uh, we shouldn't let it get in the way of our lives. It's like the flu. What do you think about that? Well. <clears throat> Like a lot of things the president does, he puts his foot in his mouth. <clears throat> um, I also just think the type of speaker that he is, uh, he doesn't speak eloquently. He shoots from the hip. It puts him in a very bad position a lot of times. <clears throat> uh, I really don't know 100% what he meant if he was being serious. I like to think that he was saying something similar to uh, what I tell people, which is... <clears throat> This is very serious. It's very dangerous. Granted, only a very small percentage of the people get as sick as I do. Um, and I'm lucky. I got very sick, and I, I have reflux, which causes a cough, and that's pretty much it. I'm back to normal for the most part, versus mid-range people who are getting it, who are winding up with symptoms going on for months. But like I said, it's very serious. It can be very deadly. It can be just affecting you mid-range and have those long-term effects. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to be smart. We need to be safe. We need to wash our hands. We need to wear our masks. We need to listen to the scientists and not the politicians, unless they're enacting a law that we need to follow. And we do, we do need to go about our lives as best we can, as normally as we can, taking those things into consideration and be as safe. Does that mean go eat, you know, with 400 people at a wedding? Yeah, that's probably not the smartest thing to do from what the data we have right now. <clears throat> but small groups, don't put yourself in jeopardy. I think that's kind of what he I'd like to think he was getting at is, is, that, is that we're still here. There is a tremendous, tremendous <clears throat> psychological impact that this is having on just about everybody, whether they realize it or not. No one's talking about it. <clears throat> and if we don't start getting back to some sense of normalcy, safe normalcy, um, you know, we don't know where the psychological impact, what it's going to turn into, what it's going to do to people. Right. You know, we see it with small children, with right. lack of structure in school. <clears throat> it's just getting out there as, as safely yeah. as possible. It's Scott Cohen, survivor of COVID-19, Nassau County. Uh, Scott. Thanks again for, for giving us a call. Elizabeth Schneider, a survivor of COVID-19 in Seattle, Washington, one of the early infections on the, the West Coast. The White House refusing to fully engage in contact tracing efforts to try to figure out how President Trump got the coronavirus. Now, it appears the White House Rose Garden announcement of Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett was a so-called super spreader event, but... It looks like how the president contracted the virus will forever remain a mystery. Does this show that contact tracing efforts at large aren't where they should be? Dr. Renu Dillon, Senior Health Advisor, Division of Global Health Equity, Brigham and Women's Hospital. Doctor, if the White House doesn't do the contact tracing, uh, what about the rest of the country? Well, contact tracing really should be happening across the board. I think in much of the country, 
um, a, a big challenge with having it happen well is number one, we have so many cases. So to really investigate and follow up each case takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of human resources. And number two, a lot of our local public health departments just don't have the bandwidth, have not been given the uh, the funding to the level needed so that they can actually add the expertise and, and the personnel needed to do it. Um, the White House choosing not to do it, you could say it's it's their choice for, for you know letting themselves remain at risk, but it's really actually a bigger public health problem for the people who have come in contact with them and the people who are going to come in contact with those contacts. So them not doing it is not just something that's inflicting harm on themselves or putting themselves at risk, which they can do with their by, by their own choice, but it's really putting a broader range of people who I'm sure don't want to be put at risk at risk of not knowing if they've been infected. Well, on that kind of a note, take me through the difficulties of trying to contact trace a large gathering. If you do have 50 or 100 people and you know you have some cases at that, what do you have to do and what lengths do you have to go through? Yeah, so with contact tracing, you know, conventionally, uh, for, for uh, I'll t- talk about a general case that's not necessarily COVID. If somebody is diagnosed with an infection with an epidemic disease, you would find out you know, when that person became infectious. For example, with Ebola, people became infectious, meaning capable of infecting others uh, the moment they started having symptoms. So you can find out, okay, this person started having symptoms on Monday. These are the people who have been around them in the proximity and the duration of time necessary for infection to, to potentially transmit. And then you can then follow up those people, get them tested, make sure that they're quarantining, pending a chance to make sure that they're not themselves infected. Now with COVID, all of this becomes a little bit more complicated, even without talking about the large numbers. And that's because it's a respiratory disease. So sometimes we can pinpoint that somebody must have got infected the day they went to this meeting in this room because three other people got infected. They've not been around anyone else who could have potentially infected them. But sometimes it's not clear. But and in the White House instance, go ahead, right. sorry. Uh, you know, but I was going to ask, though, but at this stage of the game nationwide, with, with so many tens of thousands of new infections every single day. Uh, contact tracing, isn't that a ship that's kind of sailed at this point? I mean, how could, how could anybody reasonably trace infections now when there are so many of them? Well, I think it could be done if we actually set up the system to do it. And just like with anything you need to do at large scale, you figure out ways to streamline the process. You figure out ways to automate that to some extent. And I think, for example, I see patients who are coming in with COVID, when I, when I see them coming into the hospital, just from talking to them, I can pretty much identify where they were maybe likely infected and who has been around them during the time they've been infectious. And that just happens within you know, a couple minutes of interacting with them in the emergency department, for example. So we can really, if we, if we set up a streamlined way of doing this, it's very doable. Massachusetts has been doing it. A number of countries around the world have been doing it. It just really requires the effort and the resources to have enough bandwidth and personnel to do it, and then also setting up the systems to do it. What about these apps that they were going to ask all of us to get so our phones could know if they were near somebody else's phone and that guy or person, that, that woman had, had the virus? I think those could be a huge value add because they would automate that, that process of actually figuring out who was close to whom for what length of time where they may have been in, infected. The challenge, though, is as you point out, they've not really t- uh, taken off because of privacy concerns. And ultimately, those apps would need buy-in. And you know, nowhere in the world has that buy-in really been there. South Korea is doing the apps really well, but they have it actually enshrined in their law based on their experience with SARS uh, about 20 years back. So it's a different game there. But everywhere else in the world, it hasn't really taken off, but it could make a huge 
difference in terms of um, facilitating and speeding up the ability to find out who's been around who. Yeah, you're depending on us to go and uh, click the button, the download button. Dr. Renew Dillon, uh, instructor, Harvard Medical School, senior advisor, Global Health Equity, Brigham and Women's Hospital. Coming after this short break, is this the beginning of the end of movie theaters? The movie theater industry has been devastated by the pandemic. This has been and will probably end as their worst year ever since movies have been in existence. Studios are postponing the release of blockbuster movies like the newest Batman film and James Bond movie until next year. And Regal says it's closing its theaters again for the time being, at least. Uh, What happens now? Matthew Bellany, entertainment attorney, former exec at The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Matt, what are the movie studios and the movie theaters going to do? Well, the challenge here is for the theaters because it's essentially like owning a grocery store when the supply of food is cut off. I mean, there's nothing for them to play. So one of the major chains, Regal, has decided to shut its doors for the rest of the year because there's just nothing to play. The others are hanging in there with reissues and some smaller movies. But, you know, you've got a lot of these markets, New York, Los Angeles, not open yet. And then they tried to put a big movie in theaters, the Tenet movie, and nobody went. So most of the movies are moving to 21 and beyond. And the theaters are in a really hard place. Well, I mean, and and I guess what? Economically, does it not make sense for them to take these films and, you know, go to Netflix, HBO, Showtime, whatever? For a certain type of movie, yes, it does make sense. And we've seen that. There was a big Tom Hanks movie this summer, Greyhound, that went straight to Apple TV. And a number of these movies have gone to HBO, HBO Max. Um, But... For a certain type of movie, the movies we all love in theaters, the big blockbuster, they cost $150, $200, 250000000 million to make. It just doesn't make sense to put those on streaming. You need the big box office to make these movies financially viable. You mentioned Tenet. Do you think that was a big moment that people look to because the, the the thought going into that, and we talked to a couple of critics who said, you know what, this is the movie, it's Christopher Nolan, and I've been waiting a long time, this is the one I'll mask up for and, uh, you know, risk it a little bit. Or were the reviews just not that great, and it was hard to hear, and I was confused, and I didn't know what was going on, so it's not a good, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good example. Well, it did well overseas. So there there is an audience for this film. It did about $300 million overseas. But in the U.S., it just sputtered, and you can come up with any you know reason for that. But the end of the day is this was the experiment movie, and it didn't perform in the U.S. And then after that, one by one, these big movies, Bond, Dune, Wonder Woman, they all punted. Might this lead – this, of course, wouldn't help the movie theaters, but it might help, I suppose, the studios – Suppose they went back to a model of, of not making all these, you know, blockbuster $300 million, you know, movies. If they made smaller films, the kind that could have a life on on cable, on streaming services, might that be their at least near-term salvation? Sure, but that's a dramatically different and downsized business. I mean, these studios are built on the billion-dollar blockbuster. They can fuel the rest of the movies that they want to make. And most of the movies, most of the studios have focused on those movies for that reason. If you want to talk about just making movies for streaming, well, that's a different business. And it's going to require a dramatically 
different company to make those. Um, so I, I don't think that the studios want to abandon the blockbuster. Uh, they, you know, they may want to make more movies for streaming and make these smaller and mid-sized movies for the streaming audiences. And they're already doing that, but they still believe in these big billion dollar blockbusters. They just need a place to show them. Do you think more chains go the, the regal route? They were hoping for something in the stimulus bill, but as we were talking at the top of the show, that's more in doubt now than it, than it has been over even the last few months. Yeah, the, the theaters are openly begging for a bailout now, and I don't know if that's going to happen, um, but the viability of these companies is at stake here, and I wouldn't be surprised if into next year we saw a dramatically downsized theater industry. And some would argue that that should have happened anyways. There are too many movie theaters in this country to begin with, but uh, this is not what a lot of people saw playing out a year ago, for, for, for sure. Matthew Bellany, entertainment attorney, formerly editorial director at The Hollywood Reporter. Matt, thanks. President Trump's COVID diagnosis has gotten some people to rethink their behavior. A new Axios-Ipsos poll shows about one in five people in the country now say they are more likely to wear a mask and socially distance because President Trump has tested positive. 77% say this will not change their behavior at all. 2% actually say they're less likely now to wear a mask and socially distance. The president's situation also has more people thinking about gloves. 12% say they're more likely to wear gloves now. You can find this podcast on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stay well. Stay well.